Once we were dead, separated from God. But scripture describes a great mystery that moves us from death to life. A union between the created and the divine. United with Christ, we have an inheritance. We are redeemed and we are restored from our brokenness. But how do we experience this great mystery? How do we get from life as we know it to union with the Son of God? And what does it mean to be found in Christ? Well, good morning again. If we haven't met yet, my name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here. And today we are wrapping up a series in the book of Ephesians. So I'd like to invite you to grab your Bibles and open up to Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of the blue ones. We'll be on page 569. A couple announcements, though, as we begin. First is we will, as Micah mentioned, be having a brief members meeting after the service today. As soon as we're done, go get your kids. Come back in. It shouldn't take more than Bob says 15. I say 10. Whoever loses, 12 and a half. Whoever loses, those are the other a Coke. So we'll try to get through as quickly as we possibly can. We just have a couple things to vote on. So please stick around really briefly after the service. Um, you'll have time to get home for at least the fourth quarter of the Vikings game, so you won't miss the important stuff. The other thing is uh, found out that someone is having an anniversary this coming week on Thursday. And did you know that less than 1% of marriages get to 60 years? So this coming Thursday, Ed and Ardith Bender, is my date correct, Benders? Okay. You think so? Ardith, is he right? Uh, this, this coming Thursday, Ed and Ardith are going to be celebrating 60 years of uh, their 60 year anniversary, which is. <clears throat> Thank you both for setting a good example for a lot of us on what a faithful marriage looks like. For uh, If you didn't know, Ed and Ardith also helped plant this church in 1978. And have you guys ever left? Never. They've been here ever since, putting up with me, which not since then. I mean, I'm not that old, but thank you guys for serving as a visible testimony to what a faithful marriage looks like. Well, we're wrapping up Ephesians today. We've made it. The end of our series. So really quick recap before we dig into the text this week. We saw all this rich... Oh, I got a box elder bug. Hold on. Just a sec. Darn it, it's in the crack. Got it. Okay, we're good. Um, we saw at the beginning in chapters 1 through 3 that God extended his grace to us when we were still sinners. And that faith that comes about because of our trust in him allows us to be sealed by the Holy Spirit. We saw riches that we've been given in Christ. Remember those two words that are life-changing, but God. Then we saw this shift in chapter 4 that sets the tone for the rest of the book that we've seen. Paul urges us to walk worthily. And we do that by seeking unity, by continuing to put off our old self and put on Christ, by walking in love, having rightly ordered relationships at home and outside of the home. Today, we're going to be looking at the final way we walk worthily. And it picks up a similar theme that we saw at the end of chapter 4. We're called to put something on today. But today, instead of putting on the new self, we're going to be called to put on the whole armor of God, which, as we walk through the text, we'll see is the same thing as putting on the new self. So hopefully by now you have Ephesians 6. If you do, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together this morning. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. As you're seated, I'd invite you to pray with me once again. Father, I thank you for our time in this book. Thank you for the ways that you have reminded us that, that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but you have now made us alive together with Christ. I thank you that right now, those of us who are in you are seated next to you in heaven. And God, I long for the day where we will finally see you face to face. God, as we continue walking through this text, I pray that you would transform us and conform us into the image of your Son. May we be found faithful on that day where you, you return and bring us home with you. May we be able to stand firm in this present evil age and set an example in speech, in, in life, and in what we believe. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a, a guy growing up, this was one of my favorite personal Bible passages because it has this connotation of fighting with it. I remember being in, in children's church wearing those cheap plastic armor of God toys when I was in Sunday school. Now, we all know the 90s were a weird time in the Christian evangelical subculture. In fact, this passage stuck out to me so much that when I went to college and took Greek, I spent three months just studying this passage and then did a whole big presentation using movie clips from the movie 300. I loved this. See, Paul's picking up this Roman idea, this elite fighting force who dominated the world history for centuries. The problem is, that is not Paul's intent. So while Paul would have, would have certainly been able to see during his imprisonment the many opportunities to, to see Roman armor up close and personal, his choice of armor in this passage would have been leaving out some of the key areas of the Roman armor. Instead, what Paul is doing is he's actually picking up a messianic prophecy in Isaiah. Now, you don't need to turn there. I'll put it up on the screen. But listen to some of the wording from Isaiah. Smack dab in the middle of a messianic prophecy that we read most Christmases about someone coming from the stump of Jesse uh, on whom the spirit of the Lord would rest. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. Isaiah says, righteousness shall be the belt on his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Later on in Isaiah, in dealing with the Lord's coming salvation, coming right before one of the Easter passages in Isaiah 53, we have Isaiah chapter 52, which verse 7 says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, 
who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Similarly, in Isaiah, just 10 verses later, 59, 17, it says, it's wrong on the text up there. It should be 59, not 52. I'm sorry. It says, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. See, these descriptions that we see in Isaiah's prophecy, these are the things that are running through Paul's mind. Now, these descriptions are actually the things that we now get. Because as we've seen, the theme throughout this book of Ephesians is what we have when we are in Christ, which leads us into verse 10. This whole section is summarized with Paul's command to us to be strong in the Lord. But notice where this strength comes from. So it begins, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. He begins finally. So this is, this is a summary, the ending point of how we practically walk worthily. And, and in many ways, what he's going to be talking about in this section is, is a good summary of everything that's come before it, as we'll continue seeing as we continue walking through it. But notice, whose might are we supposed to be strong in? See, even the, the command to be strong that he says at the beginning has this connotation of us being strengthened. We are the ones acted upon to be strong. God is the one whose power is at work in us. Remember, we saw that in Ephesians 1.19. When we are brought into right relationship with God, God strengthens us. It is also God who works all these things out in our lives. Now, there's a quote I've shared before from Jonathan Edwards, where he said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You contribute nothing. Now, this is circling all the way back to chapter 1. And chapter 1 began, in him, we have redemption in verse 7. We have an inheritance in verse 11. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit in verse 13. All these things that Paul is describing take place because of Christ's work in us, not because of anything we can do. And how do we appropriate this strength that God has given to us? By putting on the full armor of God. Putting on the armor of God is how we remain strong in the Lord. He begins, put on the whole armor of God. See, we don't get to pick and choose the characteristics or pieces that we want to put on, which is generally the way armor works anyway, isn't it? Every individual piece is necessary for comprehensive coverage. But there's also the truth that there is nothing that's redundant or unnecessary. Every piece is carefully thought through and planned to be the most effective possible in battle. Similarly here, we need to arm ourselves completely. Why is that? Let's look at the rest of verse 11 and 12. So that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is a reminder that the physical world is not all there is. We in the Western world have a unique perspective on all this because we have a tendency to ignore the spiritual realities around us that the majority world continues living in. But we can't get completely away from it. Even in our so-called enlightened minds, you go to Target and you can still buy a magic eight ball. You go to Walmart and you can still buy a lucky rabbit's foot. There's still psychics who will tell you your fortune if you pay the right fee. And as I've shared before, even Sephora tried getting into the game by selling witch kits. See, our culture is far more spiritual than we care to admit, or for many times, even realize. See, the problem is, for most of us in the Western world, we don't pay enough, to the, enough attention to the spiritual state of our souls. There's a tendency in our culture to care a lot more about our physical health than our spiritual health, because the spiritual health is a lot harder to measure. 
And I'll be honest, I think this is part of the reason that it's very hard for many of us to get to church on time. Now, I know there's, there's kids that take forever. There is the lame driver who is driving super slow on the way to church. The list is endless for reasons why you will come late to church. But don't forget, we do not fight against flesh and blood. We fight against a devil who has been honing his craft forever. And that's also why we need to gather together, because this, what is taking place right now, we have no clue the spiritual implications of what is happening just because we're here. We, when we gather, are supposed to be visible representations of the world to come, which we'll see in the next verse here. The other thing to note about this is, is we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the devil, the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. Satan really exists. He's a real entity, and he has had literally millennia to hone his craft of temptation and lying and leading us astray. Think about some of your hobbies. How do you get good at the hobby that you've chosen? Practice, right? Hours and hours and time and money. Now take that and expand it by millennia. And that's what the devil has had to work with. Paul also reminds us that this wrestling is in the spiritual realm. I remember as I was growing up, I loved the idea of wrestling. Wrestling with my dad, wrestling with my sisters until they cried and ran to my parents. Wrestling with my friends. Calvin and Ellie now love wrestling with me. But notice there's a specific type of fighting that is, that is, is denoted by wrestling. The spiritual battle is not something that is far removed from us. It's close. It's intimate. It means that we actually need to deal with it because ignoring the spiritual reality actually leads to our detriment. Brothers and sisters, we are already in this battle. The question is, what are we going to do with it? Paul answers what we should be doing here in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Again, notice what he's saying. It's going to pop up again. The whole armor of God in verse 11. Take up the whole armor of God here in verse 13. So that we can stand. Now, the idea of standing has already come up a few times in, in just these few verses, which if you think about it, how do you stand when we're commanded to walk worthily, right? You can't stand and walk at the same time unless you go to the airport and get on one of those moving walkways. But other than being at the airport, you can't stand and walk at the same time. What Paul is connoting here and, and, and demonstrating to us is Paul is saying we don't need to win the war. He just says to stand. This is a reminder for us that the battle has already been won. Jesus already defeated Satan, sin, and death. We just have to stand. And when are we supposed to stand? In the evil day. The Bible divides human history into two eras. Before Christ and after Christ. And the after Christ feast that we are living in now is known as the last days or the evil days. What Paul is communicating here is the way, the means by which we walk worthily, the way we orient and go about our lives means we need to stand strong against the devil and his works. It means not rescinding, not giving up any areas to him. Think of someone wearing a, a military uniform. If you notice the flag on their arm, no matter which way they're going, they're always moving forward. The flag is always flying back, signifying that they are never giving up any ground. Similarly for us who are in Christ, we cannot give up any ground to the devil. That is how we're supposed to stand firm. Now, let's look at how we're able to do that as we put on the whole armor of God. What does the armor consist of? The armor is, in this next section, both subjective and objective. 
Does that make sense to you? Subjective and objective. Subjective is something that we experience. So this armor is supposed to be something that we are putting on a truth that we are supposed to be demonstrating in our lives. But objective means that there's a standard outside of ourselves that this is true regardless of how we feel or are putting on each one of these pieces. So as we walk through the armor of God, we're going to talk about what it means subjectively for our experiences and objectively in that it points us to true truth. That is Jesus Christ. Now, this debate has actually uh, spilled much more ink than you would think about. Like, is this a description of, of Christ or is this supposed to be a description of us? But when you get right down to it, I think both of these realities are supposed to be true. Jesus completely personified every description, every piece of this armor in here. And because we are now in Christ and supposed to be like Christ, we should demonstrate these things in our lives as well. So, verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the... Belt of truth. First piece we have is the belt of truth. What is the truth that Paul is referring to here? Think back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Paul, at the beginning of his letter, says, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Here we see that the gospel message is what is associated with truth. One of the things that I was, uh, one of the mottos or mantras of my, my uh, college was, All truth is God's truth. Or as I've shared before, Francis Schaeffer described this as true truth. So when we find someone anywhere that is talking and pointing to the realities of true truth, we should be celebrating and encouraging and, and, and endorsing that reality. Now again, remember this is truth both subjectively and objectively. So it begins when we objectively believe the truth of the gospel. Believing in Jesus who is the truth. You saw that in Ephesians 4.21. And then subjectively, out of that means we as Christians are commanded to be truth tellers. We saw that in Ephesians 4.25. We also have the reminder that as Christians, we have the only truth. As the truth of the gospel starts to take root in our lives, we become marked by truthful lives. Which leads us to the first question for all of us today, are you marked by truth? Throughout history, those who have been most used by God have been people who have been most saturated in God's truth. Martin Luther had most of the Bible memorized. John Wesley, whose evangelistic zeal was the spark God used to begin a revival, had the entire New Testament memorized in Greek. Now this foundation of God's word, being the, the, the thing that everything else comes out of, will come up again. Remember that. But he goes on, having put on the breastplate of righteousness... Righteousness is one of those Christian words that gets tossed around a lot, but then not always defined. So what is Paul talking about? Once again, this is something that has come up before in this book. So Ephesians 4.24, Paul commands us, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This tells us that there is something God-like in righteousness. It is moral uprightness, which we know is not our own doing, because apart from God, we have no right standing. So again, subjectively and objectively. Objectively, there's one righteous person in all of existence, on all of human history. But through faith in Christ, his righteousness is given to us. Now here's your big theological term for the week. This is known as imputed righteousness. That means that Christ takes a penalty for our sin on himself, and we, in exchange, get the righteousness of Christ given to us. This is what one author calls the great exchange. We give sin, in return we get righteousness. That's the best exchange that could ever happen in your life. So with that, this righteousness, have you made that great exchange? Have you brought your sins 
to God's feet, given them to him, and then received his righteousness. Paul goes on again, verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. See, all of us wear shoes, right? There's various types of shoes for different types of activities. You've got your hiking shoes, you've got your basketball shoes, you've got your tennis shoes, your sandals, your dress shoes, and even Crocs. But there is nothing worse than wearing the wrong shoes for the current activity you're doing, is there? When I was growing up, I played basketball and had really weak ankles. So for me, I had to make sure every time I played, I had the right kind of shoe for any activity I was doing, really, to make sure I didn't accidentally roll my ankle. Shoes really matter. But spiritually, we actually need to be ready to manifest the gospel of peace. But not just the gospel of peace. Notice what he says. Put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So what does that mean? We must always, in every circumstance, be ready to share the gospel. Anything that comes up, what can you do to bring it back to the gospel truth that we believe? Now, I'll be honest, there's a certain amount of jealousy that I have for those of you who are not in vocational ministry. All of you who who work in in a place that is not a, a Christian environment have opportunities to have conversations around the coffee machine that I don't. I miss those days where I got to rub shoulders with unbelievers every day in the workplace because opportunities came up almost weekly where someone would ask me some kind of question about why I was so different, why I emphasized different things. Uh, even now, like not working at a church, but trying to get to know our neighbors. One of our neighbors one time made a comment to Kara and I, uh, everyone we've met through you is so nice. I was like, well, we just we get rid of anyone that's mean. <laughs> but that, that's what's unique about Christ being in us, Right? Like, bring those people into your, into your atmosphere, into your environment. Have them get to know you and watch the way that you operate and do your family. It, there should be something different about you. But notice as well, this isn't just about where you work, as we've seen the past couple of weeks. Parents, you have opportunities probably every day to demonstrate the gospel and what you say in and how you live to your kids. But notice as well, it's not just the gospel. It's the gospel of what? Gospel of peace. Now, I think we have a tendency to neglect that aspect to our faith, except at Christmas, where we remember that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And again, remember, this is objective and subjective. Objectively, the gospel is what allows us to have peace with God, which subjectively leads to the peace of God. Apart from God's work in the spiritual realm, there is no hope for peace in the physical realm. One of the commentators on this this section said, spiritual warfare is the solution to human warfare. Spiritual warfare is the solution to human warfare. Remember, we don't fight against flesh and blood. However, in God, there can be peace. Apart from God, if you are not in Christ, if you don't have him working in you, there is no hope for peace. So, again, another question. Is your life marked by the gospel of peace? The next piece of armor that he encouraged us to take up, verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. There's a a story in in the New Testament where uh, Jesus is is calling out a man, asking him if he believes. And and his response to, to get healing is, I believe, but help my unbelief. Which I think is a good description of the Christian life, isn't it? We want to believe, yet... Until Christ returns or calls us home, there's always going to be areas where we're struggling to actually believe the truths of what Jesus says. We need to remember, though, faith in God is actually based on precedent. There's things God has done to you and that God has done for you in your life. And again, remember, all these things are both subjective and objective. So objectively, 
We put our faith in God, the true source of truth, but then subjectively, that faith is based on the things God is doing and has already done in your life. One of my favorite hymns is, this, is uh, uh, Come Thou Fount, which has a, a line in there that says, Here I raise my, does anyone know the word? Ebenezer. Ebenezer. Now that's a, just a transliteration of a Hebrew word, which means stone or altar of remembrance. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, what that is signifying is anytime God moved within his people, he commanded them to build some kind of altar to remember it. So a specific one is when they walked across the Jordan water. So if you remember the story that the priests were carrying the, the Ark of the Covenant and they get close to the water, they continue walking, they continue walking. As soon as they put their feet in the water, the, the river dried up and the entire uh, nation was able to walk across on dry ground, similar to the Red Sea. And then as soon as they got across the other side, God commanded them to build an Ebenezer, a stone of remembrance, so that when they live long in the days and the kids start asking them, what is that altar there for? They can go back and say, that is the moment when God worked in our lives. I think all of us need some of those things in our lives because we're so quick to forget how God has provided. Uh, think of just this building that we're sitting in right now. Do you know what it took to get here or the fact, the reality that we almost had to sell this building 12 years ago just to survive? Think of what God has done, how God has provided above and beyond some of what a few people who prayed in 1978, some of whom are still sitting, sitting in here over 40 years ago could have even dreamed this church would become. But not just us. Think about the church that Paul is writing to in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. They were under persecution daily. Do you, ever, do, you, do you think within their minds that they ever could have thought that Christianity would become the dominant world religion? So this should remind us, have faith. When we have faith, it actually allows us to fight against temptation. Think of all the ways that, that people, maybe even you, try to excuse sin. Some of the ones I've heard are, the devil made me do it, which might be true. Uh, some would say, I was born this way. I can't help it. Others would say, it's not my fault. Some would say, it's bad parenting. It's just the hand that I've been dealt. But at the end of the day, none of that matters as an excuse for sin. Now, all of us have those pet excuses that we go to when we allow the flaming darts from the evil one in. And as we saw earlier, remember, he has been practicing his archery a lot longer than you and I have been around. So put your faith in God. Trust that he is better than any temptation that the devil might throw at you. Paul goes on again, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. Just as a helmet is meant to protect us, so salvation is meant to protect us. Oh, I got a ladybug. For those of us who are in Christ, we can now wear a helmet of salvation. I need a helmet to protect me from all the bugs flying down here. Once we are truly saved, here's the reality. There's no going back. This actually allows us to walk with confidence because we already know our destination. Now, the other sport I played when I was growing up for a little while was football. And I can still remember the feeling of invincibility that overtakes you when you put the helmet on. I have a cousin who's probably 10 years younger than me who also played football. But I, I distinctly remember when he was like six or seven, making me 16 or 17, he tried his hardest to tackle me because he was convinced that his, the helmet was his key to victory, despite weighing half of what I do. But for those of us who are in Christ, this, this helmet that we have, unlike my cousin's feeble attempts to tackle me, this is the key to victory because this is the linchpin for everything else in this text. You don't get any of the other pieces of this armor unless you have salvation. Again, this is objectively and subjectively true. Objectively, salvation is an undeserved free gift. But subjectively, just ask an older saint what the outworking of their salvation has been. Seriously. 
buy them a cup of coffee, look around, there are people here who have been Christians longer than you have, and ask them how their salvation has brought them through anything that life has thrown at them. Paul goes on, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This last piece of the armor illustration Paul uses is a sword. Now, a sword has actually come up in the belt of truth section, but this time, Paul uses a sword analogy, which the author of Hebrews picks up in Hebrews 4.12 and says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This reminds us that the word of God divides us. As we've seen in Ephesians, it divides us, our new selves, from our old selves. It divides the world into those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. We also see that the the, the sword of the Spirit is the most effective way to fight against sin and temptation. Think of what Jesus did when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Instead of giving in to that temptation, he quoted scripture back to him. Jesus did the opposite of what our first parents did when Satan shot his flaming arrow that is just as effective back then as it is today. That is questioning, did God really say? See, as soon as you begin questioning the role of Scripture in your life, you are left with no foundation. There's a new podcast that has come out recently called, uh, is it Rediscovering Faith? Sorry, Reconstructing Faith by a guy named Trevin Wax that is really, really helpful. He's, He's walking through why has there been all this deconstruction in the church recently? So he's looking at things like the purity culture or authority in the church, and, and he is making the analogy that it, that it is similar to a house, and a house that has specifically rot in it. So if a house has rot in it, you need to do some pretty major work on it, some pretty major renovations, take out drywall, pull up the floor. But what you cannot do, otherwise you ruin the whole house, is start taking down load-bearing walls. Scripture is the load-bearing wall that, that everything else rests itself on. Because if we don't have an authoritative word, an authoritative way of submitting ourselves to, then we have nothing else to stand on. So it's, it's like the difference in your house. If you take drywall out, your house is going to remain standing. If you take out the primary load-bearing wall of your house, your house is going to completely fall apart, similarly for our faith. Now, once again, this is true both objectively and subjectively. Objectively, God still speaks to you every time you open his word. How do we do this? Well, I loved what one of the pastors who preached through this uh, said about this specific verse. Four things. Read it, meditate on it, memorize it, and study it. Read, meditate, memorize, and study. It's not going to do any good if it's just sitting on your nightstand. So subjectively, allow the Word of God to transform you. We, in in the Sunday school class I'm doing, had had a talk. One of the the sections that we did was the, the transformative power of Scripture. I'd encourage you, take some time and and think through what is a time in your life where you've been reading God's word and your life has changed because of the truths that you were confronted with in God's word. Because if you haven't changed based on God's word, then you need to start questioning what it is that that is your true source of authority in your life. There were some beautiful stories that came out of that in, in the class. Ask someone sitting nearby you about it. Now, although this is specifically the last tool mentioned, the sword of the spirit, I don't think Uh, I think Paul actually goes on and adds another subtle one without making it a part of the armor. And that is the reality that all this comes about through prayer. Because all of this isn't going to do any good unless the wearer actually knows how to use every single piece. 
I remember when Calvin was younger, I, went, I took a, a trip to Louisville for a conference and went to the Louisville Slugger Museum. And at the end of that, they give you this tiny little wooden bat that, that is like a, a Louisville Slugger tiny bat. And so when I gave it to him, he was probably two, two years old or something like that. But as soon as he got that in his hand, everything turned into a baseball. But a baseball bat is only really useful for one sport. Similarly, we need to spend regular time in prayer so that we can figure out how to best use all the rest of the instruments that has, has, have been given to us. I like to think of it a little bit like the scene in The Matrix. Uh, Neo downloads a program to his brain, opens his eyes, and suddenly says, I know Kung Fu. Well, similarly, when we cross from death into life, we now have access to this full armor, which we grow accustomed to through prayer. In these last verses, Paul uses the word all four times to show just how comprehensive our prayer lives should be. So first, verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit. Another passage, uh, 1 Thessalonians, Paul says to pray without ceasing. Now, so often people just dismiss this as impractical, but a way you can think about this is where does your heart and mind go when you're struggling? What about when things are going great? Because in both of those situations, you have an opportunity to pray. And it's noted that it's in the Spirit. The third person of the Trinity who indwells us as believers and reminds us to pray. He gives us the words to say, and then he allows us to come boldly before the throne. So all times, he goes on with all prayer and supplication. This is a variety of prayer. Other places, the Bible mentions intercessions, thanksgivings, confessions. We have a wide variety of things that we should be talking to God about. So let's ensure that we do. It's not all. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. That means don't stop. You realize that God never gets tired of repetition, right? God actually invites it. He loves when you continually ask him. Think of the uh, angels in Revelation that are around the throne. Because it describes them as day and night. Day after day, they continue singing over and over and over. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. How long does it take for you to hear a phrase over and over before you get tired of hearing it? Yet that's what is sung around the throne every single day, all day and all night, and God never gets tired of it. That means we can continue asking God for the same things over and over. Pray for your neighbor or your coworker who you think is as far from Christ as possible. And remember, there's no one beyond the reach of God or beyond the need of God. The fourth and final all is making supplication for all the saints. This is a command to pray for each other. I was convicted of this some years ago. Like It's, it's almost a, a Christian cliche where someone uh, shares something that's going on with their li- uh, in their life with you and you respond, well, I'll pray for you as if like, okay, we can end the conversation now and I'll move on. I'd encourage you, don't just say it, do it right there. I can't tell you how many times I've been convicted during a conversation with someone to pray for them and it has turned into one of the sweetest times of fellowship with each other and with God. And when I ignore or suppress that inclination, I miss out on both blessing someone else and being blessed by this time of fellowship together. Now notice, so we've got the all fours, all times, all prayer and supplication, all perseverance and pray for all the saints. But then Paul also asks for prayer for himself. Look at verse 19 and 20. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now notice, Paul prays for a lot more than travel mercies and health, doesn't he? Not that we shouldn't be praying about those things, but don't forget to be praying for the gospel to continue advancing in our community. 
When's the last time you asked for, for prayer, for boldness in your gospel presentation? I hope and pray that we start seeing more of those kinds of requests on our prayer chain. But this isn't where Paul lands the letter. The last is, is a bit of a sign-off here. And he ends by saying, grace be with you all. So first he says, so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Paul is sending his beloved brother, a dear friend, who has been through thick and thin for the purpose of encouraging the church at Ephesus. Remember where Paul is when he is writing this. Paul is under house arrest. He is as discouraged as you can possibly be, yet he is still trying to encourage the church at Ephesus. That's amazing. That's a picture of the guy who has learned the secret to being content in all circumstances. That leads us to the kind of question all of us should be asking. How can we encourage each other no matter what circumstances we're in? But finally, the last two verses, notice what he mentions here. He says, Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord with love incorruptible. Last things he mentions, peace, love, faith, and grace. That's a, a pretty good description of the gospel and a great way to end our time studying this book together. Peace. God has provided a way for people from every walk of life, every background to come together and get along. Peace with God leads to the peace of God in our lives. He goes on, love. Not just getting along with each other, having peace, but genuinely loving each other, just like Christ loved us. Out of that comes faith, the bond that unites us. You may have heard the phrase that blood is thicker than water. That's not true in the family of God because here the waters of baptism are what unite us and that is going to be far stronger than any family bonds that we have here on earth. And lastly, verse 24, grace be with all. God's undeserved favor that is given to us. See, we need to be reminded of that reality all the time. Instead of missing or neglecting the fact that, that we have God's grace given to us, we need to emphasize that all the more as we draw near to the time when Jesus finally returns. Well, Paul here has told us how to ensure we're standing fast against the schemes of the devil. And it begins by praying. Uh, Bruce gave you some time to pray earlier. I'm going to give you a, a few more, a minute or two to pray right now. We've seen some specific things that, that we can pray for. We've seen for, to pray for the strength to stand firm. We've seen to pray for each other. And we've seen to pray for boldness to proclaim the gospel message. So as you did earlier, I'm going to encourage you, take just two minutes here. Take some time to pray, asking God for these things that Paul is commanding and encouraging us to pray. And then I will close our time in prayer once again. Heavenly Father, I thank you that because of the sacrifice of your son, we can now be strong in you. I pray that we, through the <clears throat> preaching and admonition of your word and through the encouragement of each other, would be reminded to be strengthened. I pray that we daily would, would remember that we don't fight against flesh and blood, that we don't fight against each other, but instead we are fighting in the spiritual realm. Help us to demonstrate peace to the world. Help us to, to love each other in word and in deed. Help us to be faithful to the things that you have called us to do and be. I thank you that you have given us a love that is incorruptible. Pray that we would regularly die to ourselves and remember that we are not our own, but we were bought with a price. Pray that we would glorify you in what we do and say, that we would walk worthily of the gospel message that we, we claim to believe. God, I thank you for your word. Thank you that your word transforms us and conforms us 
into the image of your one and only Son. So we pray that in everything we do, you would be honored and glorified and that we would faithfully continue pointing people to you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.